Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back to another exciting episode. I have partnered with World Wildlife Fund as we continue our Flood Green Guide series focused on nature-based approaches to flood risk management. You may recall episodes I did with WWF in 2018, shortly after the release of their Natural and Nature-Based Flood Management, A Green Guide, better known now around the world as the Flood Green Guide. In the intervening years, despite setbacks by the pandemic, WWF has been busy doing trainings on the Flood Green Guide. And in this episode, we're exploring how WWF engages youth in flood risk and management. We'll hear from young individuals worldwide sharing their experiences with flooding and their thoughts on nature-based approaches to flood risk management and the importance of art, science, and engaging communities. We'll discuss why WWF is launching a new Flood Green Guide Youth Champion Initiative, the importance of including youth in flood risk reduction strategies, and some of the barriers young leaders face while trying to make meaningful change. And we'll hear from a group of young professionals who travel to Sri Lanka to work with the WWF team to design the Flood Green Guide Youth Champions Initiatives from the ground up. Some of the participants and organizers share their thoughts on the workshop and why engaging youth in a truly meaningful way is so critical to reducing disaster risk and adapting to climate change. I'd like to thank World Wildlife Fund for sponsoring this episode. This was a fantastic experience for me where I spoke with inspiring young people doing amazing work to reduce flood disaster risk. Okay, let's get this episode started. Hey, Adapters. Joining me is Anita Van Breda. Anita is the Senior Director, Environment and Disaster Management at World Wildlife Fund. Hi, Anita. Welcome back to the podcast. Hi, Doug. It's good to be with you again. You've been on quite a few times, but for those who aren't familiar with you, what do you do there at WWF? I'm the Senior Director for Environment and Disaster Management based in Washington, D.C. with WWF, and my team is part of our climate goal, and we're part of the Adaptation and Resilience team. I'm very excited about this episode. I was able to talk to people from all over the world, but this is based on some previous work around the Flood Green Guide, and let's ground people in that. What is the Flood Green Guide? The Flood Green Guide is the short name for Natural and Nature-Based Flood Management, a Green Guide. And this was something that we issued in 2017. It's about using natural and nature-based approaches to flood risk management. The guidebook and the training program that supports it was generously supported by USAID Bureau of Humanitarian Affairs. And they asked us to develop this program because many of their clients and constituents that they support around the world face risk around floods. And with a changing climate, we need more and additional methods to complement some of the more traditional flood management methods that are based on what we call hard or gray engineering. And they told us they they couldn't find the kind of guidebook that they were looking for And so we wrote the Flood Green Guide to respond to that need. And we did then develop a training program to support the use of that guidebook. And we are just uh, closing now on the current phase of that training program. And for those people out there, so the guide has been out there for a while. Who do you recommend use it? Who do you want to use it? The primary audience was really intended to be for what we call mid-level decision makers, maybe a 
a local mayor or a local manager of a water management board or a local community group that's supporting risk reduction in their area. And if they face flood risk, they're looking for multiple and alternative practices to help reduce that flood risk, they could use the guide. It lays out some basic steps and procedures that the user can use to understand what their flood risk might be, to understand how to set an objective for managing that risk and really being clear, what are you trying to do by managing flood risk? And then a number of different methods that can be used, either standalone methods or usually in combination in order to reduce flood risk. And there's much that goes into it. It's not just the technical engineering part, but it's also about engaging with community members and decision makers. It's about understanding what is risk and where is it coming from and how can that be included in the management approach It's understanding how a changing climate, how changing land use all has a bearing on flood risk and the multiple kinds and numbers of people that need to be a part of the solution to flood risk. And also the book is promoting the several different principles. One is that not all floods are bad and floods can be a very part of a natural process within an area. And so we want to be able to maximize the benefit that flood waters can play in a community, but obviously reduce the risk and eliminate threats to uh, lives and livelihoods. And you've been on the podcast before for a variety of reasons, but we did this whole three-part series. And it's been a little while since we did those podcasts, but those were related to the Flood Green Guide. Can you just briefly tell my listeners, what did we cover in those previous podcasts? And I highly recommend people go back. They still hold up very well. And this is a continuation of, of that story that we've been telling together. Yeah, thanks, Doug. I, I did, knowing that we were going to talk today, I've also gone back and listened to those episodes. And I also hope your listeners will do the same because there were some great conversations. And it was a reminder to me about the challenges, the many different kinds of challenges that we face with flood risk. So we talked with some of the leading experts, the technical experts that have been really on the front of managing flood risk around the world. And they also spoke to, you know, as things change, we have to also adapt and update our practices and are supportive of using nature as part of that flood risk. We had people who are doing communication, doing art and film, and engaging young people with art in understanding disaster risk and how to mitigate it. And so it was a reminder to me that the things we talked about a few years ago in those podcasts have come up over and over again in the interim, in the training program that we implemented as part of this Flood Green Guide project. And Doug, we started that training after you and I did those episodes together And we were really geared up to go out in the world and do lots and lots of in-person flood green guide trainings. And we were just ready to launch that in March of 2020. And we can all remember what happened in March of 2020. The whole world came to a halt because of the COVID-19 pandemic. My team had to, like everyone else, had to adjust and quickly translate all that in-person training we were going to do into an online and virtual only training program. And we did that from 2020 to 2023. And only in the last you know year or so, as, as things have been getting better with the pandemic, 
we've been able to go out again and meet with people in person and work with people in person. So as we do that, we hear some of these same themes coming up over and over. And that has led us to where we are now talking to you about this new initiative that we've crafted on a real focus on youth and young professionals in flood risk management. And I was also inspired by a few words I happened to hear A couple of months ago, the USAID administrator, Samantha Power, she was giving a talk in Fiji and we're doing some work in Fiji. So I was listening in and I'm glad I did because she spoke very eloquently about youth and youth engagement. And she said, and I'm I'm quoting here, youth are not just the future, they're the present. And too often we think of youth as down the line, they'll be the leaders. No, they're the leaders today. And I just love that because that is exactly what we're trying to do with our FTG Flood Green Guide Youth Champion Initiative. We sought out leaders. We want to support leaders, not because they are the future, although they are. They're also valuable and valid now in the present, but they need support. They need training and capacity building, and they need the space to really contribute meaningful engagement. So I'm not suggesting we know all the answers to those challenges now, but I'm quite confident that working with this group and others that will join, we can try to tackle that. And I think that's really key for reducing flood risk in the future. So let's give people the 30,000 foot view. We're going to hear from the participants of this workshop in Sri Lanka about what was happening on the ground. And we'll also hear how the people were recruited to participate in this workshop. But can you tell us what the whole point of bringing people together for this workshop was in the first place? Yeah. And, and just to set the context a little bit, as we've been doing trainings the last few years on the Flood Green Guide, we keep hearing from many of our participants. And we were just looking at the numbers and we've been able to reach about 500 people who have gone through a a two or three day training program with us. But through some of our, our other education and seminar based learning, we've been able to reach over a thousand people with this concept. So we, we've been able to get a lot of feedback from participants. And one thing message that came across to us is that the nature of the workplace is changing. The way that people go into their professional careers, be it in conservation organizations or humanitarian organizations or engineering firms, there's an expectation that that organization and the work that it does is going to take climate change, climate change adaptation, disaster risk reduction very seriously, and that nature has a role to play in all of that. So recognizing that those expectations are out there and As I have said in our past podcasts, and people hear me say all the time, I personally am very committed to training the next generation of practitioners. I was inspired by our Flood Green Guide training participants, by the people on my team, to make sure that with this issue of flood risk reduction using nature, 
we are really focused and invested in building the capacity and supporting young people to be a serious part of this issue. And so that led to our team's decision to create a youth champion initiative for the Flood Green Guide. And Lou Cervantes, who you're going to be speaking to, is the project manager for this. She's really been leading the effort for the team on a day-to-day basis. Besides Luce, who else are we going to hear from? Well, we're going to hear from a diverse group of people because as you and I have talked about before, to address flood risk management, we have to have a diverse set of skill sets and experiences in the room, so to speak. And so Luz will explain, we took a pretty deliberate approach to recruiting those differences into the program. And we're going to hear from some of the youth champions from, for example, Uganda and from Colombia and from the Bahamas, they all had different backgrounds and have had different experiences with flood and flood risk management. But we're also going to hear from a fellow called Sam Shores, who is based in the U.S. He was not part of the youth championship program, but I really wanted to include him in this discussion because he's working on living shorelines, which are a nature-based approach to addressing sea level rise as well as flooding. And I think he represents a lot of the aspirations that we have for the youth championship program in terms of his creativity and his dedication to working with people who have been impacted by disaster. So I thought it would be great to include his experiences in this discussion as well. Benita, I'm going to see you at the end of the episode. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Doug. Hey, Adapters. Joining me is Luz Cervantes. Luz is a Senior Program Officer, Environment and Disaster Management for WWS US. Hi, Luz. Welcome back to the podcast. Hi, Doug. Thank you so much for inviting me again. Let's just talk about that. You've been on before. What episode was that? So that was the episode related to the program Mangroves for Climates and Community, where we talked about our work, where we have been doing some projects in WBF Madagascar to help restore mangroves, as well as integrate disaster risk reduction measures in the area. That was a fun episode. I got to go on location in Mexico, and it's great to have you back on. So remind my listeners again what you do at WWF. So I work in the environment and disaster management team, where basically we work to integrate environmental considerations into disaster risk reduction and recovery activities. So really working to make those connections between environmental degradation and how that affects disaster issues. So tell us a little bit about the history, though. How did you end up joining the EDM team? Yeah, so I actually joined WBF to work on the climate mitigation side of things. So quite different and just ended up connecting with Anita, who leads the team, while I was working on climate mitigation issues. And I was really interested in that since I actually have a background also on working with international cooperation issues in developing countries. And Anita's work is very focused on international issues. So I was really interested in going back into the adaptation field. And that's how I started working with her. Great. So we're going to pivot here and we're going to talk about the youth workshop in Sri Lanka. Tell us a bit about the process of recruiting those nine youth champions and you know how did that all work? Yeah. So basically it was a really long process and time consuming process because we had a lot of interest. We put out a call for applications earlier this year and we got over 400 applicants. Wow from three different regions, which are our focused regions. So Latin America and the Caribbean, Asia and the Pacific Islands, as well as Africa. 
So a lot of interest, and we had a small team working on reviewing those applications. We worked in collaboration with the Red Cross Climate Center and Youth for Resilience, which is a youth-led organization, to start that first stage of reviewing the applications. And so from then on, we defined a selected number of applicants, which were around maybe 30. And we really wanted to have an independent third party look at those applications so that it wasn't the core team selecting the nine youth champions. So for that, we actually involved an international selection committee members. Part of that team was Kyle McKay from the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and Lauren Herzer-Racy from the Wilson Center. So that really helped us to have outside eye look at those. And from then on, we had like a pool of 10 applicants that we interviewed and ended up picking nine of them. So let's talk about the workshop in Sri Lanka. What did you guys literally do there? And of course, you can't cover everything and maybe share just some of the outcomes. Sure. Yeah. So the workshop really had like two main focuses. One of them was capacity building. So we had a lot of sessions focused on natural and nature-based flood management, climate change, disaster risk reduction. Obviously, a big focus was on this nature-based solutions for flood management because it was based on the flood green guide. But then we also had even more important focus, I would say, on co-designing a program, a youth engagement program with these nine youth champions. So really the objective of this pilot program that we are finalizing right now was to design a a youth engagement program with youth and for youth. So we had a lot of workshop activities where we heard from the nine young leaders that we selected, the barriers that they have been facing in trying to engage in activities related to flood or disaster risk management and climate change. And we really tried to understand the solutions that they could see for those problems. And with those ideas that they had, came up with basically a, a design for this youth engagement program for Flood Green Guide. Can you tell us a little bit more about that draft design? Yeah, sure. So that draft design basically focused on three main objectives, which respond to the barriers that they have identified. One of them being the lack of of capacity in youth for understanding and knowledge around natural and nature-based flood management. The second objective is really focused on the lack of spaces to integrate into decision-making process. So there is not really a lot of spaces for youth to contribute to decisions around flood risk management or disaster risk management generally. And then the third objective is related to the lack of funding that is available for youth to be leading projects or being involved in flood risk management. So basically building capacity is one of the main objectives that will have this program, then establishing youth-focused spaces that can help them to engage in decision-making and increasing the funding available for youth innovation and flood risk management. Great. So most of the participants had their own personal experiences dealing with floods. What did you learn when you heard those stories? That's right. Yeah, we had really a variety of backgrounds among the nine youth champions, but a lot of them had, as you said, faced themselves floods in their communities. And I think what I really learned is that those experiences are invaluable in order to address the challenges that we are trying to address with climate change. So it is really key to actually integrate their knowledge into this process. So they have been working with communities already themselves and have all of that experience that we can bring into this process to make sure that the program we create is going to be as effective as possible. And I think that is something that that was one of the, the main outcomes of this program for me personally. 
So what are some of the key issues that are turned out to be priorities for young people starting their own flood management journey that you learn from the workshop? Yeah, so they mentioned, for example, a big problem around tokenism. So a lot of programs are now talking about youth engagement and, for example, inviting youth to speak in panels. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they are really meaningfully integrating their thoughts and their knowledge into program design or decision-making process, policies, etc. So they are really interested in being meaningfully engaged in decision-making processes, not just invited for one or two webinars and then that's it. That's where it ends. Another one they mentioned was lack of funding available for, for youth specifically. So a lot of the times they are trying to develop programs into their communities because they are really close to where floods are happening in the case of these youth champions. But there is no funding available for them. It's really hard for them to get the funding. And finally, yeah, the, the lack of capacity building opportunities for youth as well. So there are these nine young people and they're all from different countries and they all have their own different circumstances. So what value do they really get from working together? I think the value was that they were all, first they were all passionate about this topic and about helping their communities to be more resilient to climate change. So I think they really found some sort of tight group in that sense that they all have this common goal, this common passion and different challenges. So they were able to problem solve together. We had a session, for example, where one of the youth champions shared some problems, some challenges that she's been facing in her community. And the other champions were able to contribute with ideas of how she could engage to support that community who has been facing devastating floods. They also all came from different backgrounds in the sense that some of them had been working really closely at the community level. Some others had more of experience with policymaking, for example, engaged in UN youth networks. I think that diversity of experiences really helped them also to, to gain a broader perspective on, on the issue that they're trying to address. I'm going to pivot a little bit more here just with your own personal experience in dealing with young professionals. And so you've worked with folks in Colombia and Madagascar. What did you learn from them? I think the main thing I have learned from all of this process is really that this passion and determination that they have is really something that we should not overlook because it, it is a big asset and a non-tap resource that we have. To, to address this challenge of the climate crisis. And so by partnering with, with youth in a meaningful way, I think we can really achieve so much more. And yeah, I think I, I really left like energized and inspired by, by their contributions and by the work they've been doing on the ground and also by their insights that we often don't have like the space to, to listen to. Last question. If my listeners want to learn more about the Flood Green Guide Youth Initiative, what should they do? So they can head to our website. We have a couple of articles that have been published, also our Twitter, and I guess also listen to this, this podcast. But stay tuned because we will be publishing a lot more of resources around this. And we are definitely also looking for partners as we move forward to the implementation of this design program. Fantastic. Luz, thanks for coming on the podcast and sharing your message. Thank you so much, Doug. Hey, Adapters. Joining me is Baris Griffin, an expert in disaster risk and preparedness. Hi, Baris. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Doug. Thanks for having me. Where are we talking from? Where are you based out of? I am born and raised in Nassau, New Providence, Bahamas. So I'm currently talking to you from the Bahamas. 
Uh, that sounds actually very exciting. So what do you do there in the Bahamas? So I am an expert in disaster preparedness, management, mitigation, adaptation, response, pretty much everything to do with disaster management. So I'm working on various projects throughout the Bahamas and often throughout the Caribbean in improving disaster management strategies. Okay, we're going to talk a bit about the World Wildlife Fund Flood Green Guide, but I want to start off. Let's talk about how floods have impacted your life there in the Bahamas. Yes. Born and raised in the Bahamas my entire life. Interestingly enough, my birthday is in September. I just celebrated my birthday last oh, week. Birthday. <laughs> Thank you. And I can always remember my birthday being around two things, the peak of hurricane season and also around the first day of school. So it's always up in the air on whether I will actually be able to attend school around my birthday because uh-huh. either a hurricane is happening. With hurricanes comes flooding, lots of flooding. And with the Bahamas being an archipelago and a, a low-lying coastal nation, we are below sea level. A lot of our land is below sea level. So we do get a lot of flooding. So flooding in my life has is a recurring theme. I can always remember friends and families in low-lying areas kind of losing everything or a lot of property damage. And fortunately for me, no personal lives lost, but just a lot of damage as rainy season, peak hurricane season, we can expect a lot of flooding and it's a common occurrence. So every year, every season, and it's getting worse by the year, but I can always remember floods. I think we could talk about this for the entire time, but I don't want to do that. But tell us a bit about Hurricane Dorian. That was a pretty significant event to impact the Bahamas. Yes. So Hurricane Dorian occurred in September of 2019. So I think now about four years ago. And it was the worst recorded hurricane in the Bahamian history. So it came as a Cat 5 hurricane and it stalled for about 48 hours over two of the northern islands. So for 48 hours, it simply did not move over these two islands. So this was unheard of and unprecedented in Bahamian history for hurricanes. Usually Hurricanes just come and go, but Dorian just loved the Bahamas so much that he stayed for 48 hours. So it caused a lot of damage. And I think for us, Hurricane Dorian has now become the baseline for how we should look at hurricanes in the future and how we should improve and adapt our disaster management strategies and our flood management strategies. I imagine it's the equivalent of Hurricane Katrina for New Orleans. This is just, it defines the entire area. Can you tell us a bit though, like being on the ground there, you said these Northern islands, but you still must've seen a lot of impacts where you were based. Yeah. So I am based in Nassau, which is the capital. It's one of the central islands and the two Northern islands, Grand Bahama and Abaco, they're pretty much in a hurricane belt. So statistically, they're the two islands in the Bahamas that gets the most hurricane action. They're always repeatedly and frequently hit by hurricanes. So in the ground in Nassau, I can just remember flooding everywhere. So luckily I live on a hill or a very high area compared to the rest of the island. But I can just remember looking through my window and seeing the entire island pretty much flooding. Highways were flooded. You could not see through the rain how much rain came. I know that the storm surge in Abaco and Grand Bahama was about 23 feet. So people's homes, two-story homes, three-stories home were completely underwater. People's second floors were underwater. So It was just a lot of water and on the ground in Nassau, just flooding. Cars were trying to go through. They got stalled out in the water. It was just 
water everywhere. We were completely underwater for days after Dorian. That sounds harrowing. So thank you for that. Just giving us a little bit of background. Like I said, we could devote the whole episode to that. But I want to pivot here and I want to talk about the WWF Flood Green Guide Flood Youth Initiative that you participated in. Now, we've already learned what that is, but can you give us a bit of background? Why did you apply for that? I received my master's degree in disasters adaptation and development from King's College in 2020. So I have kind of self-branded along with my cohort at the time as masters of disasters because we all received our master's degree in disasters. So as the self-proclaimed master of disaster, I just thought it was important to become well-rounded in various types of disasters, particularly disasters that affect me in my home country, the Bahamas, and my region, the Caribbean. But it was important for me to be well-rounded and well-versed in different types of disasters and how to manage these different types of disasters. So when I saw the opportunity with World Wildlife Fund for the Flood Green Guide Youth Program, I thought this is a great way for me to take some of the theoretical things that I've learned in school and through my practical experience and just kind of expand more with flooding because although we get hurricanes a lot in the Bahamas, we really get a lot of flooding more than being directly impacted with hurricanes. So I thought this was a great opportunity for me to learn about flood risk management, particularly and different ways to incorporate nature with flood risk management in my local context. Well, the workshop sounded pretty intense and you guys covered a lot of ground, but can you give us some highlights from the workshop? The workshop was really intense. Five straight days of nonstop learning, interaction, participation. I think a highlight for me was not just learning about flood risk management, but learning about nature-based solutions with flood risk management. Because when people think, or at least in the Bahamas, when I think about flood risk management, I can just see a lot of seawalls being built. So I learned the difference between gray infrastructure, green infrastructure, and mixed methods and solutions. So that was really cool to learn and see how it is implemented or is not implemented in my local context. And then this being the pilot program, I also thought it was cool to see how to build a program or designing a program from scratch, you know, getting a cohort of young people from different perspectives, different countries, different backgrounds, and designing a comprehensive and holistic program for future generations to learn about flood risk management. So Building a program from the vision statement or the mission statement to the objectives, I just thought it was pretty cool to build something from the ground up and see how it evolves over the years. And tell me a bit about some of the other participants. You guys came from all over the world, right? Yeah, we did. So the participants were ranging from, let's see, the Philippines. We had someone from Cambodia. We had someone from Uganda. Lots of different places so just all of yeah, you don't have world. to name them all but just yeah <laughs> i don't want to put you on the spot <laughs> and so anything stand out from some of their stories some of their stories it's pretty interesting hearing a lot of the active youth participation that they've had in their experience and seeing how much youth engagement was very much a pivotal role in their journeys and just understanding what flood context looks like in different contexts so for me being a coastal area And also in the program, we learned about different types of floods. So that was cool. So me being in a coastal area, I know about aerial flooding and coastal flooding and storm surges versus 
other countries experiencing urban flooding, flash flooding, and what that looks like. So it was nice to get these different perspectives and see how they are coming up with strategies to combat flood risk management. All right. So you kind of talked about this, and I think this is what you actually identified at the workshop, but what subject matter should be included in training to support young people's involvement with dealing with flood risk? Just the technical capacity. So just the basic terminology, learning the differences between a hazard and a disaster, floods, different types of floods, just the technical vocabulary and the the knowledge would be very important. All right. So you call yourself a master disaster. And I think this workshop informed this, but have you had formal academic training or even on the job training and using nature-based approaches to reduce flood risk? So no, I think my academic training was really theoretical, more policy-based or policy approaches or just case studies and examinations of different types of disasters, not even much natural hazard disasters, just all-encompassing. So I don't think that I had a lot of academic training in terms of flood risk management specifically. But practical training, working with government institutions in disaster management and seeing the capacity or lack thereof, the capacity, I think I'm getting a bit more into that groove. They brought you together. And how do you feel that what responsibilities do youth have when it comes to disaster risk reduction and floods? I mean, everyone's young and WWF was focusing on you guys. So what are your responsibilities? I think our responsibilities at the crux of it is building awareness or trying to build a bridge between the older generation and the younger generation and seeing how we can collaborate. Because I think general consensus from the program was that there's a lot of gatekeeping or knowledge gatekeeping from older generations where they feel like they are being pushed out of certain positions and spaces and young people are fighting their way in. So I think it's important for us to understand that there's lots of room for collaboration and there's importance in succession planning, succession building and the trickle down of knowledge and making sure that younger generations know the history of certain practices and strategies, the good and the bad, so they can present new and fresh ideas and perspectives and making sure that some things evolve, but some things are put in place for a reason. So I think Our program talked a lot about just young people building awareness in local communities and contexts and just trying to create a space for collaboration between older generations with the younger generation. So the Bahamas have a unique threat from sea level rise, and as all all islands do. Do you sense that younger people in the Bahamas are thinking about sea level rise, even if they're not deeply involved like you are? I think in recent years, there's been a lot of conversation among young people on sea level rise because with the Bahamas just celebrated its 50th year of independence in July. So it's a big occasion for us to be 50 years young because we are still a very young developing nation. And with people in my generation, my age group and younger, we're all thinking about our future. You know, Hurricane Dorian wiped out a lot of places in Abaco and Grand Bahama. So people are thinking, When I have my children and my legacy building, where am I going to go? Where am I going to plant my mangrove seeds? Or where am I going to plant my my sugar apple trees? Will I even have a place to call home? So with sea level rise, a lot of young people are thinking future building and future development on 
what's going to be left or what's going to be available if we don't tackle this issue now or create strategies to adapt and mitigate these flood risk issues now. So the conversation is building on how do we protect what we have left and make sure there's something to pass on to future generations. Obviously, with WWF, there's this emphasis on nature-based approaches to reduce disaster risk. Do you feel the Bahamian government is thinking like that? And if not, should they be? I think the Bahamian government, this this administration's agenda is climate change focus. And I think there are baby steps being made. As someone in the field and someone who's very passionate about the field, I'm always going to say not enough is being done or not enough is being invested into climate change and disaster risk management to protect our coastal zones. But I think baby steps are being made. We are having a lot of mangrove planting initiatives because we recognize that mangroves present a lot of capabilities for biodiversity, but also coastal management and coastal protection. We're investing a lot in coastal zone management and the blue economy strategy right now. And like I said, I think it's baby steps, but something's better than nothing. But this is a marathon, not a sprint. But as a Caribbean, we run fast. So I think we should be running a bit faster. All right. Good answer. So what's next for you? What's on your plate? Well, I'm always working. I do have a blog called themasterofdisasters.com where I offer household and personal strategies and tips on how to have some personal level of preparedness against hazards, natural hazards specifically. I am going to continue to work with the private sector and government institutions in the Bahamas and in the Caribbean to create effective policies and strategies for disaster management. Life-wise, I see myself obtaining another degree, maybe in climate change or even my PhD in disaster management, just to become more knowledgeable or more of an expert in this field. I have my own consultancy called Mangrove Strategies in which I am working on projects with the private sector and the government to create effective disaster management strategies. So that's what I have going on now. And then hanging out with my two dogs. That sounds pretty busy. All right. Last question. <laughs> Let's say someone's visiting the Bahamas. Do you have a favorite spot? Just give me one, a favorite spot in the islands. In the islands, well, my family heritage is from Andrus. Andrus is the biggest island in the Bahamas. And I think it's also a great place for rest and relaxation if you want a little bit of island life. So it's pretty underdeveloped. So if you were looking for peace and quiet, great food, beautiful beaches, I would definitely recommend Andrus. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your story. Thank you for having me, Doug. Hey, Adapters. Joining me is David Alejandro Urena Ramirez. David is a geologist and an expert in disaster risk and preparedness. Hi, David. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Doug. Thank you for the invitation. Can you tell us where you're recording this from? In this moment, I am living in the Netherlands. I am doing my master's degree in geoinformation science and earth observation. And the emphasis is about disaster risk reduction and natural hazards. So how did you end up over in the Netherlands to start studying? Because tell us where you are, you're from at originally. Originally, I am from Colombia. So that's why I have like a Spanish name. I like to maintain that a little bit because when you are far from home, you like to have something that reminds you. And why I am here, I came here to study because I've been working with disasters for maybe five or six years now. 
we need to study and we need to, to learn something new. And if I want to learn something about the floods, we should go to a place where they have a lot of floods. And this is the Netherlands. And they know a lot about how to manage the water. We can learn something about it and apply it in our countries. Yes, we hear all about the work the Netherlands are doing. They actually collaborate with quite a few local governments in the United States. And so they, they, their reputation precedes them. I want to talk a bit about your background. And so have you had academic training already or on the job training in using nature to reduce flood risk? Well, Doug, I have some academic um, training. As you just said, I am a geologist, but my bachelor's was in geological engineering. I did my bachelor's thesis in flood assessment in one particular region back in Colombia. I have done several courses related with disaster risk management. I am really interested in, about floods because Colombia is like an amphibious country. That means that we have a lot of water. And for us, it's a big problem. I have some experience working with the government in Colombia in a local office of disaster risk management. I think that we have to work with the communities. We have to learn about the disaster assessments in order to apply our knowledge in the communities in, in our countries. And can you elaborate on any other involvement that you've done with flood risk or disaster management, I guess maybe in Colombia and or maybe some other countries, but just on the ground experience there? I can tell you a little story, if you don't mind, about how my life have been impacted about floods and disasters. Okay. My journey with floods like started when I was maybe 16, 17 years old, and I was in my grandparents' house in a town, in a really small town near a big river. The name of the river is Chipalo. It's another Spanish name. <laughs> Suddenly, one night, everything was flooded. And it was, what's happening? I didn't understand in that time what was happening. When we had more light, the water was gone. And I was, this is weird. We had a lot of water. And in this moment, we don't have almost anything. But the damas was done. We had everything damaged and, and everything was affected. It was a lot of people that were affected about the, the floods. And now as a geologist, I understood a little bit about how floods works. And I know that floods are something natural because the, our rivers and all the rivers in all the world are really dynamic. And it's normal to have floods because sometimes the river is going to be with a lot of water and sometimes the river is going to have less water. And that's totally normal. We need to understand how is the, the behavior of a river to plan our cities, to plan our settlements. When we can do that, that's perfect. But in the tropical regions and in this, in the global south, that's kind of difficult. So that's why we need to train the communities to know and to learn how to read the dynamic of the river. They need to know like when the river is going to be with a lot of water, they need to need when the river is going to have less water and they can plan ahead. How are they going to build, build the, the neighborhood? How are they are going to do their normal activities? All right, we're going to pivot a little bit. That was really interesting how that your background got you to where you are. Obviously, you got your head into this flood management area, and that's fantastic. But we're going to pivot, and we're going to talk about the World Wildlife Fund Flood Green Guide Flood Youth Initiative. So what inspired you to apply for that in the first place? It was a friend of mine. From in, she's from the Philippines. 
she sent me the, I don't know how to say that, like the cold about the, the program. And she told me that I could apply or to that initiative. And after I studied the call, I said that I could participate, I could learn, and I could contribute with my experience. In all my years, I've been thinking that the communities should participate in all the processes related with the flood management. And I showed that the program wanted to do that, but with a special interest in the new generations in youth. I was totally agree with the, with the approach that they wanted to do. The other approach that really interested me is related with nature because I really believe that we can build our cities and we can build our neighborhoods if we understand that what is going on with the river, how it's going to affect our houses, how it's going to affect my work. That's something that I've been thinking a lot, so I just apply it. So tell us, and I know it was a pretty intense workshop, what did you like best about the workshop? And you, can you tell us a bit about what you thought of the other participants? I just want to say a little short sentence about it. We have the same problems worldwide. Listening to my peers from Asia, from Africa, from other countries in Latin America and the Caribbean, give me a world approach about the flood problem that we have in the global south. We have exactly the same problems. We have, of course, many cultural differences, but the problem with floods, it's worldwide. We are not alone because we are trying to do something about it. The new generations are working really, really hard to make our communities to, to try to better communities, to try to plan our cities. I think that we built a really good program for youth in the Global South back in Sri Lanka when we were doing the workshop. We are sure that it's going to be a really good proposal for all the youths dealing with floods in, in our countries. So I guess on that note, just what subject matters, and I guess you talked about this at the workshop, should be included in training to support young people's involvement in dealing with flood risk? We have to understand that the youths are the key for social processes and transformation in our societies. We need to give youth the tools to do that, to do the change. At the beginning, we could have like an approach with some workshops, but later they will need to have really good backup and support for continuing the processes that they started in their communities. The government and more organizations could give the youth like that support to do all the work that it needs to be done in the communities and in, in those settlements. So what do you think governments and NGOs need to do to include youth when they're thinking about flood risk management? Maybe we need to understand our territories before make proposals. So the flood risk assessment will be a must for future trainings to the youth. I am not talking just technical skills. We need to understand how our societies works and how the organizations work. We need to know how to get resources to do our projects. This could be like the way that we could train and we could give the youth the tools to do this kind of things, this kind of projects for the flood risk management in the local communities. And that is something that you don't learn in the school. That is something that you don't learn anywhere. You only learn with experience, but it's kind of difficult try to, to do things if you don't have the tools to do that. And going back to the workshop, were there any surprises? When you get there, you had your own experiences and so did everyone else, but were there any surprises that stood out for you? 
they were just showing us how the fluid green guide is. They were presenting that. And also they tried to give us some of those tools to present projects, to find some resources, to build like a platform for the youth community. Uh, for me, that was something new because I am from the, the academy. I have a lot of experience working in communities, but in a different context. It's not like I am organizing all the communities and I am coming from a university. I am coming from outside. We have this project, but the point of view of WWF was you have to build with the community. You have to go with the community and build with them. And that was something that was a different approach to the things. And I really like what I learned there. Fantastic. So last question, and this is kind of a fun one, is that going back to your home country of Colombia, is there a favorite spot? If someone was visiting Colombia, just give me one. What's your favorite spot there? I like beaches. The beaches from the Caribbean are amazing. So, uh, and I haven't seen that kind of beaches anywhere in the world. I have traveled a lot and I think that Colombia has a really good beaches. Yeah, maybe in Santa Marta, they can find like a, a really, really good spot to go and relax. Great. We covered a lot of ground there. I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks to you, Doc. Hey, actors, joining me is Misaki Daniel. Misaki is the founder and executive director of Ihendiro Youth Advocates for Nature. Hi, Misaki. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Pasan. And I think I probably mispronounced the name of the title. Could you go ahead and do that for me again? Yes, I'm the executive director Ihendiro Youth Advocates for Nature. All right, perfect. So tell us a bit about what you do there in Uganda with that organization. Uh, yes, at Ihendiro Youth Advocates for Nature, it is a youth-led and funded community-based conservation organization. And we are working to mitigate uh, flood risk in uh, communities. We are based in Uganda, in the western part of the country, in Kasese district particularly. That's on the Renzori Mountains. So uh, we work on projects in landscape restoration. We also work on projects in uh, promoting affordable clean energy technology so that people can reduce the impact of energy on the natural resources. We also work with grassroots communities to help them establish green enterprises that will help them mitigate and adapt to climate change. Can you give us a really quickly overview? What's Uganda like? I'm assuming it's a very mountainous country and how many people live there? Give us a little bit of basic facts about Uganda. Uh, Uganda approximately has a population of 40 million people. But in this population, uh, over 75% is generally young people who are just the youth between 12 years and 35 years. Uh, the country is actually very nice, a nice country geographically. It, it is crossed by the equator and it is the source of the Great Nile. It hosts uh, the Renzori Mountains National Park, the Renzori Mountains. National Park. It has the Wind Impenetrable National Park, which hosts uh, the largest population of the chimpanzees in, in the world. It has the, the Queen Elizabeth National Park, Makishon Falls, and very many other attractive natural sceneries. Generally, the country is rich with biodiversity and it's real good. And everybody who is here has always desired it to be here again. All right. Fantastic. I did not know that the largest chimpanzee population help my listeners get a sense of what weather patterns are like in Uganda. What are some of the extreme weather events that you experience there? 
Well, it seems to be now, actually it's now one of the expected things that every time you have a rainy season, you expect uh, floods and landslides. In uh, 2020, we had the, the worst, the worst extreme weather condition that we've seen. That is a time, uh, that was in, on 20th May 2020, and it's a time when we had all the rivers across the district flooding. River Nyamamba was flooding and destroyed all the hospital, Kilembe Hospital in Kasese Town Municipality. River Mbuk was also flooding. River Lubiria here at the border with the DRC, the western border, was also destroying all the bridges actually across the, the river connecting to Congo and to other sub-counties within Uganda. Everything was totally down and it was a time when we were in the COVID pandemic. Mobility was very difficult. All the farms were damaged. Houses were damaged. Trade and business was typically completely damaged and all the infrastructures, including roads, were down. It was a hard time for both the uh, civilians and the government to cope up with the disasters because we needed food to eat but couldn't connect to our gardens because uh, the bridges were down. Even if you had to access your, your garden, without the bridge, the food was either damaged by the landslide or the, the floods. So it was very dangerous for government. There was a lot of struggle to renovate all the bridges. You can imagine in one district having lost more than five bridges that we are going to cost more than at least 10 billion Ugandan shillings each bridge. That was a huge loss where the hospital where there were patients, the mortuary was damaged, sick people were taken, and it was really very, very dangerous. That Up to date, you still live with the scars of that flood disaster. Actually, even the park slided, part of the Renzori National Park was sliding, and, you know, the forest was damaged itself, so it was real hard. Wow, that's a lot of impact. All right, we're going to pivot some here, Misaki, and I want to talk about the World Wildlife Fund Flood Green Guide Flood Youth Initiative that you participated in. So why did you apply to participate in that in the first place? Thank you. First of all, I am a young person who has been inspired by the challenges that my community has lived with for decades from the time I was born. I saw natural scenarios here, but because people have been over-depending on natural resources, their floods, their droughts, so generally floods and landslides are causing a huge, a huge disadvantage to the community. So as a young person, I saw this was a great opportunity for me to, first of all, connect with other young people and share my experiences on a landslide, how we are working with other youth to combat the the magnitude of the risk and also help build the community resilience and adaption to these disasters. And then uh, from the sharing, of course, uh, I also needed to look at how other youth are working on the other side of the world to combat and integrate different solutions in flood risk mitigation. The Flood Green Guide was the, actually an advantage for me that I was so optimistic and ambitious that uh, when I connect with these young people, I'm going to be in a network of people where I can keep on collaborating on solutions and innovations in combating, using nature-based solutions to combat flood risk. And indeed, it has been a great opportunity because I connected, I shared, and I was able to learn, and I'm still connected and learning more from the network that we have been able to work with from, with other youth. 
All right. So you were at the workshop and this is obviously some stuff that came up with what you were talking about. What subject matters should be included in training to support young people's involvement when you're dealing with flood risks? So what kind of training background would you recommend? And I'm sure you guys identified that in the workshop. Yes. One of the things that should be included in training one should be the pre-flood preparedness. Most of the government, most of the communities are only responding to floods when floods have just occurred. And there are some of the risks and some of the things that have happened that are already irreversible. But these communities that are prone to flood risks should be trained. Actually, youth in those communities should be trained on how to prepare ahead of floods. For example, if it's a rainy season, how do we equip the youth in this community to respond to these floods too? One of the other things that should be trained is, youth should be trained in is advocacy on how to uh, call uh, for other different stakeholders to come on board and join the youth movements. Youth have solutions, but youth uh, have not been given an opportunity to go on that table where ideas are being influenced and uh, influenced informed decisions of the key stakeholders. Youth should be trained actually on how to make their advocacy meaningful and come out with meaningful impact. Another thing that youth should be trained in is how they can cooperate because, you know, the climate crisis is not a one-man solution. We need to all cooperate. So the youth should be trained on how they can collaborate on election sharing between countries, continents, and, con- and communities so that they can be able to understand that when they do their work in separate countries, there are a lot of things that are in common that they can collaborate on. Maybe this could be fundings, this could be knowledge sharing, this could be opportunities to learn in workshops. So youth need to be trained on collaboration. Particularly when there are events of flood disasters, youth should be trained on, on life rescue. Many people have died in floods where even it could have been possible to rescue life if there were meaningful trainings. So Youth should be able to access trainings, actually, on how to respond to these floods when they are happening. Another thing that youth should be trained on is flood recovery. We have seen communities experiencing floods, but youth are not involved on how to work with these communities and help them recover from either the economic loss in floods. They have not been helped to recover, to to, rest, to understand how they can work, to restore the biodiversity that has been in the plains. They don't know what to do with landscape restoration. So these are things that are really very important that youth should have trainings on. And we can be able to even be able to mitigate the impact of flood risk. Wow, that was a lot of recommendations. That was fantastic. As you said earlier in Uganda, there's actually a lot of young people. So there's a lot of great opportunities, especially with your organization, to engage young people in dealing with these issues. How is Uganda using nature-based approaches to reduce disaster risk? Uganda is already working on, uh, first of all, they're trying to enforce uh, policies to make sure that wetlands are not being destroyed so that these wetlands can always be buffers for water, so that maybe the water is not coming, and the floods are just pushing in the water bodies and displacing the water. And like you understand, the trees in the wetlands, especially those bad systems, tree systems, uh, root systems, help to protect the soil of the from the water effect, especially when it is near protected area. But as I said now, they're trying. the government is trying to work on a number of projects to make sure they are, there is bamboo bamboo being planted along rivers 
uh, so that the speed of water can be checked. The erosion effect of the floods can also be checked. But as I can say generally, Uganda has not yet responded with nature-based solutions to full capacity. Because if this was so, then there would be a lot of landscapes restored in the upper streams. Basically, I would say Uganda is not yet doing a very big role when it comes to use of nature-based solutions. Though it is trying, but there is still a lot lacking, especially there are a few projects that are working with the, the grassroots communities. Because when you use nature-based solutions, it's very paramount and it's only effective when you come and work with the people on the ground. And most of the projects are just being implemented by people from different communities coming to work in this community with no clear background about the, the community, about the topography, about which maybe nature-based components or plants can best mitigate the problem. So what's next for you? What's going to keep you busy over the next few months? Actually, from the training, I'm now working here on the ground to see how I can mobilize support to arrange trainings for the youth in nature-based solutions to combat flood risks. And I am also currently conducting a farmers' trainings on use of nature-based solutions, especially in, in uh, climate-smart agriculture, where we're trying to work with farmers now to make sure farmers along the rivers are trying to work with agricultural practices that can help them generate the money, but also mitigate their agricultural impact on the river systems. Because here, typically, people have been clearing river banks to access land. But now what one of the projects we are working on with is restoring those river valleys and also establishing bee farming projects within the river valleys so that the people are not cutting the trees and uh, while they let the trees grow, they can also harvest the honey from those trees, from the hives established under the trees in the valleys. We're also currently working to expand our nursery bed, actually, and we expect that by the end of this year, we should be able to give out uh, 40,000 trees to help restore the areas that have been affected by landslides. So basically, that's what we're doing. We're also trying to move and uh, see how best we can find partners to support us in uh, landscape restoration and other flood mitigation projects because it's not easy to find partners here to fund projects, but it's very critical that we really find partners who can fund these youth initiatives so that the youth potential can materialize. The youth initiatives and ambitions to combat flood risk can really be seen uh, by active engagement in projects. You are quite busy. Final question. If someone was visiting Uganda, what spot would you recommend? Do you have a favorite spot there you'd like to visit? Yes. Yes. If you are visiting Uganda before you leave the country, make sure you've gone to the top of the Renzori Mountain. So you go to the Margarita Peak. We call that a mystical challenge. Those are the few people who visit that place because it's a mystical challenge you climb. And as you climb from top, from down, uh, you will be expressing the equatorial area in the Queen Elizabeth National Park. You will be climbing through different uh, tropics, actually, from through different uh, vegetation types. And you will be able to explore a variety of animals, including those that are only in the, those that are endangered and those that are only endemic to the Renzori mountain region. All right. Fantastic recommendation. All right, Misaki, you are doing some amazing work. I'm inspired by all the wonderful things that you're doing. And I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Pastor. And thank you for the time and the efforts you're putting together to share the stories of young people to inspire the world. 
Hey, adapters. Joining me is Manon Ebel. Manon is a technical advisor with the Red Cross Red Crescent Climate Center. Hi, Manon. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks a lot for uh, having me. So I've been doing this for most of my guests, mispronouncing their names. And let's hear how your name is pronounced in the proper French. Manon Ebel. It's so much better than what I just did. First off, tell us about the Climate Center. What do you guys do there? Yes. So the Red Cross Red Crescent Climate Center is a reference center for the Red Cross Red Crescent movement, where we are advising national societies, helping them to understand the climate risk they are facing and how to reduce them, looking at the best science available, at how to make this uh, useful in practice in the local context, and at ensuring that the, the policy landscape is adapting and bridging the gap between the humanitarian, the climate and the development sectors. And you're based in Montreal, right? But you're, you have colleagues that are based all over the world? Yes, exactly. The Climate Center has been working remotely for over 20 years now. So we have a broad team working from literally every continent. It's a lot of fun to work with a diverse team. Tell me a bit about your role as technical advisor. And I emphasize a lot of your youth engagement as part of that role. Yeah, so the, the Red Cross Red Crescent is a volunteer-based movement and about half of the volunteers, the 40 million volunteers that we have, are youth. So the Red Cross Red Crescent Climate Center is doing a lot of things, creating a lot of tools to support the volunteers in their climate engagement. So we have, for instance, a youth strategy that really emphasizes the needs for you to learn about climate change, to take action and advocate. We also have uh, curriculums like Why Adapt, who are really empowering youth to take actions in their communities. We also have a set of cards for younger child. And we recently have put together a youth advisory group that is advising the Climate Center in um, different capacities, on different subjects from mental health to policy. So we are also supporting their work. My role is sort of working on all of these different components at a fabulous team at the Climate Center. What are some of the key considerations, and you just explained some of the youth engagement you do there, but what do you have to consider when you are engaging youth? It's not the same thing. It's maybe engaging more seasoned professionals in the field. Like what other factors do you have to think about? There are many different factors. I would say that we need to consider that like often they are volunteers. So we need to consider type of engagement that will not take up too much of their time, that it will be something that would be interesting for them as well. So we are often looking at concrete opportunities for them to engage that will benefitiate them in their professional or personal pathways. And we also want to make sure that their engagement will be not only a one-time thing, but something that will be sustainably engaging the youth. So if they are going to talk at an event, we want to make sure that they will be involved in all the steps from the design of the event to the the facilitation and not just coming at the last minute to make sure that there is a youth speaker. Now, how long have you been doing this job there at the center? It's been about two years. Two years. It's probably too early, but here you are engaging youth in environmental issues. And does the center track because five years, 10 years out, it's like, all right, well, these people went into these careers. Have you been able to look at that information or is that too hard to track? Well, that's actually a very timely question because we are about to launch a survey looking at youth-led climate action across the, the movement. We really want to sort of have a baseline of what is already 
happening in different national societies and see how we can improve um, youth engagement in climate action. So hopefully with this survey, we will be able to sort of have an idea of what's happening and how we can improve. I hope you guys share that far and wide. I'm sure there'd be a lot of interest in, in what you come up with there. You also worked with the World Wildlife Fund on the Flood Green Guide Flood Youth Initiative, where yeah. they brought all these people into Sri Lanka, all these young people to work on how better ways to reduce flood risk. Can you tell us a bit about that? How did you get involved with that in the first place? Yes. So WWF reached out to the Climate Center to look at our expertise, mostly in innovative approach. And so I've been involved with WWF at different stage of this project, first looking at the selection of the youth champions there we really wanted to have like um, a diverse group not only geographically but also in terms of like their experience and because the climate center recently had created a youth advisory group we also utilized this experience to advise them in the selection process then we also worked together on designing the agenda for the program in Sri Lanka and there we really looked at different methodology to make sure that we will have a program that will be created by youth and for youth at the end of the week. And we used a lot of serious games. That's something that my colleagues at the Climate Center have been developing a lot in the last few years. And serious games are very are a way to really interact with people to make sure that they not only have fun, but also they create an experience that they will remember. So serious games often simplify very complex situation and create a fun experience for participants. And we also supported WWF with the facilitation of the workshop. So they're in Sri Lanka working on the facilitation of the serious games and also team building activities because we had such a diverse group. It was really important to create also a common language to make sure that the program was really sustainable with the, the group. So this is right up your alley in the, the kind of work that you do there at the center. So I'm sure it was probably a really great experience. But any highlights from you? Like you think about the workshop, you were there. So what were some of the highlights for you? I think for me, like one of the highlights was really to see like how the, the group came together. We had like such different people attending. For some of them, it was the first time going out of their countries. For others, it was quite a normal experience to travel so much, but they all have had a different background and seeing them like learning how to collaborate and create such a big piece all together for me, that was really impressive to see coming together. So a lot of work happened there and they all helped inform like what would future training be with youth? How did it help you? You go back to your day job. Was it a useful experience for you? And are you bringing some of the things you learned there to your job now? Yeah, definitely. We are looking at how to best build from this experience with some of my colleagues. And also for me, it was also personally a super interesting experience in terms of facilitation skills and things like that. And we are really hoping to see how to connect. Obviously, from everyone I've talked to, this was a successful workshop and there's real tangible products out of it. Are you hoping within the Climate Center to do similar things? I'm guessing with all the young people that apply, there's probably a lot of demand for this kind of training, right? 
Yeah, it's always fascinating to see like the number of applications that we receive when we open program for youth. So for this specific one, we had over 400 applications. Wow. Yeah, we are hoping that this program will continue and see our youth from the Red Cross, Red Crescent movement can also benefit from this experience. If people want to learn more about what you guys are doing there at the Climate Center or potentially even partnering with you, what would you recommend they do? Well, I will definitely recommend having a look at our website, climatecenter.org. And there are different ways that you can contact us that are present on the website. And we are always keen to hear from new partners and to engage on different projects. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks a lot. Hey, Adapters. Joining me is Samuel Shores, a graduate student at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. Hi, Sam. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. Thank you for having me. Let's get people grounded first. You're there at Wilmington. What are you studying? I am currently getting my master's degree in marine biology. So I primarily study living shorelines as well as fisheries ecology in natural habitats on our coastline here in North Carolina. So how did you get interested in that? Where, where's the background for that? I think a lot of people will start off by doing benthic ecology because they aren't sure exactly what it is. And that's exactly what it was for me. So I really wanted to be out in the field. I wanted to have an experience where I felt like I was having hands-on learning. And one of the best places to do that is benthic ecology because that involves getting dirty, being out in oysters, marshes, and mudflats. And so I started studying that and really learned about some of those new techniques that we have on our coastline here in North Carolina about stabilizing shorelines, that being living shorelines. And they're a very new, relatively new, interesting way that we stabilize shorelines using natural materials. And they're also projected to enhance local fisheries. And so I got really involved in both building them as well as studying them and actually designed my graduate thesis around living shorelines. Let's get digging into that a little bit more. So there's this living shoreline project that is, is that part of your university or is that just outside and you participate in it? And give us that example of the oysters. I just love this story, this notion of using oysters to restore. And yeah, give us a little bit of background on that. Absolutely. So I think I should start off with what a living shoreline actually is. And so living shorelines are a low impact development that we use to stabilize our coast. And so these are supposed to be an alternative to some of those hardened structures that you might see like bulkheads or stone riprap. And so this way it can stabilize shorelines as well as use natural materials like oyster shell which allows oysters to actually recruit to that material and therefore enhance things like fisheries, providing refuge, habitat, and a food source. And those are ways that we can use natural materials to kind of focus on those nature-based solutions in terms of coastal erosion. My lab at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, works in tandem with the town of St. James, as well as Fort Caswell, which is on the southeast side of North Carolina at the mouth of the Cape Fear River. And we've partnered with them for anywhere between three to 17 years for both of those areas. All right. When you're dealing with the Living Shorelines Project, does the terminology of you're adapting to climate change come up or do you kind of get into that? Is that something that you're thinking in the back of your head? Absolutely. So it's one of those concerns that's in the back of our head because 
we currently have one of the most pressing problems in North Carolina, which is shoreline erosion. And some places are eroding much faster than others. So you have probably seen the Outer Banks eroding away in the news, houses falling into the ocean. It's not quite like that down here, but we are talking about areas that have receding marshes as well as a lack of oyster reefs. And what that means is that Channelized areas like the Intracoastal Waterway, as well as areas that may be along rivers, can erode a lot quicker, especially because of boat wakes. And so those areas are already very sensitive to erosion. When you take on compounding factors like increased storms, increased storm surges, and the intensity of storms such as major hurricanes, you then have a big problem on your hands because you don't have a solution in an area that can be protected if you don't have a natural infrastructure in order to hold that sediment together. That's one of the reasons where we talk about the immediate need because some of these areas are basically channelized. But the major thing is that we have to think toward the future and using natural solutions like this allows us to work with those materials and living organisms like oysters to hold sediment together. And so they tend to be much more adaptable and actually can help increase sediment in areas that are affected by storms. And so there's a fantastic study about Hurricane Matthew and how living shorelines actually held up better than hardened structures and increased sediment in the following years from those major storms. There's a lot of interesting facets to living shorelines, not just increasing sediment and preventing erosion, but some of those natural benefits that you get too, like habitat protection are also very important. We're going to pivot a bit here. You, I guess, created a documentary uh, around a hurricane, and I want you to give some background there. Give me the name of the documentary and just what was it all about? Absolutely. The documentary is called Hurricane Florence, the Eye of the Storm, and this was produced with UNCW Office of University Relations, great people at the media department there. This was a story about Hurricane Florence, as the name entails. And when I was a freshman at UNCW, I had just moved I was ready to call this place my home. And about two weeks after I started class on Labor Day, we got news reports coming in that there was a major storm off the coast that was now pivoting to hit Wilmington with the eye quite literally sitting over top of Wilmington for days. And I had to evacuate for over a month. I just sat at home and watched the news and watched the place that I had just started to call home get completely devastated. And I returned as quickly as I could. I worked with Plastic Ocean Project and did some relief work in Burgaw, which was one of the harder hit places after the storm and came back to a colossal disaster. It looked like ground zero and there were huge pine trees in the street. You could hear chainsaws all around and people who lost everything. And a lot of people who didn't get relief until even years later down the road. And it was formative in my early education because I had just moved here, but I also saw this entire city come together. And I saw that this was something where the urgency to rebuild and to sort of start anew transcended a lot of those barriers that we might see on a regular basis. And it, it really broke past racial and, and socioeconomic barriers to rebuild this area. And there was just this resurging sense of hope from that. But there were a lot of stories that weren't told when we kind of let the dust settle. And I really was determined after my four years in undergrad to try and tell that story. 
And I worked with Jess Bradley, Bradley Pearson, and Krista McKinney at OUR at UNCW to really work on telling those potentially forgotten stories so that we could learn the lessons from Florence, but also take it with a grain of salt that we have to do better. And there were a lot of stories that came from that, that that really spoke to me that I didn't even know about. And it was both, I think, hopeful as well as kind of harrowing in the same sense to see those impacts that were both forgotten about as well as things that still are occurring to this day. What were some of the challenges that came up when you were making the documentary? I think one of the biggest things was trying to tell all of these different stories in under 30 minutes. There were so many different angles to talk about. There were people who lost their homes. There were people who didn't have access to resources or or weren't even notified of where drop-off locations were. There were folks who stayed in their houses and just lost everything and didn't have anywhere to go. There were people who rebuilt and people who started food co-ops and worked with emergency disaster management in our area to build those bridges. And there were so many different stories. And I think it was so hard to try and tell all of them in one go. There's still so many that I wish I could have captured and plan on trying to capture in some degree just to bring this stuff to light. But I think it was also amazing that these stories had a lot of big impacts in our area. They spoke to a lot of people who manage a lot of these resources and have now made very, very impressive strides to accommodate those and improve our resiliency for the future. So what aspect of your education and training prepared you for making this documentary? And is there anything you could suggest be included in future training around this, around flood risk management and disaster communication? Absolutely. I think I have a unique opportunity because I have a technical background in marine science and I know that there are gaps in communication with science as well as as any form of mass communication. There's always going to be gaps and trying to be able to jump over those and build bridges across those is going to be important. As we start to think about the broad concepts of climate change and coastal resilience, We also have to keep in mind some of those social impacts and some of those different nuances that we see on a regular basis, but oftentimes dissociate in the field of science. And so I felt that I had a good opportunity to honestly tell stories as well as understanding a lot of the science behind it and understanding some of the direction that needed to be provided for the future. And I think anybody who is working with disaster relief, flood risk management, and anything needs that holistic approach. We oftentimes think of flood risk management kind of in these different steps. And the general public may also see it as really what happens when the storm hits. We oftentimes go into panic mode and we worry if our house is going to be flooded. We don't think about is my evacuation route going to get flooded? We don't think of is my drop-off resource location going to be accessible to me? We oftentimes really just break things down into very concrete steps and locations. And when you think about flood risk management, you think about these areas, especially that are low-lying on the coast. It's not just about making sure that there are enough resources or even if there's access. It's also that water has to go somewhere. When we think about flood risk, We need to have that natural infrastructure, things that can really allow water to be absorbed and drained out of an area 
when a storm hits and when it gets bigger and using at least with some foresight, using materials that we can have that are a little bit more resilient to storms and and really thinking about transparency for people who are looking to buy homes or where people live that we can communicate some of these issues as well as some of the improvements in the future, not just rebuild and hope for the best. And I think it, it definitely comes down to trying to assess these things from a holistic manner of the science, the social side, the emergency relief side, and how we can work as a unit to get this done, as opposed to thinking of hurricane preparedness and then waiting for the storm to hit and then see what the damage is. A lot of those areas, you know, right now in major cities, there's going to be risky areas. And I think there's a lot of gaps that still remain in order to really address those. How can young professionals and students become engaged in narrating the stories surrounding floods and the role of nature in mitigating disaster risks? And so you really kind of explained the idea of that, but how can people actually get involved? I think it starts with just asking the questions of where can I be best helpful? So much of flood risk management, getting involved and working with policymakers comes down to asking questions and showing up. So there's always going to be organizations and people who need things like volunteers, they need donations, and there's also a need for people to help speak up. If you see a gap or you see something in your neighborhood or in your community that doesn't feel right or you feel like people are getting forgotten about, you have every right to raise your voice and say that something isn't right. And I think it's just about finding the areas that need help and making sure that you can do your part too, to go and ask, how can I be helpful? And so much of that we don't think of as a preventative step or a proactive step. So much of it is people will wait until that storm hits. And then we say, what can we do? And it's just as important to be proactive as it is to be reactive. All right. So how can art play a part in disaster risk reduction work? So art is one of the best ways to communicate to people. It makes people think differently about a subject. It gets them to approach it with a different part of their brain than just being spoken to or watching it on the news. And I think when you can speak creatively about a subject and also do it in a way that's eloquent and concise it gives people a new perspective. So much of what we see today in terms of climate change to climate disaster and and natural disaster is usually seen on the news or written in reports. And I think a lot of people get burnt out on that or they feel like it's not something that they can digest. But being able to utilize art is a way that you can either make people look or listen to what you have to say. And it's such a great way to express urgent needs. And I think there's no better pairing than science and art. It is one of the most beautiful ways of communication that that you can use. Great answer. What's next for you? The door is wide open. I live in the unfortunate state of liking a lot of different things. So I personally have no idea, but I'm excited to see what comes. <laughs> Great answer. All right. Last question. Do you have a favorite spot there along the Carolina coast? Oh my goodness. For me, it is either Wrightsville Beach or Ocean Isle Beach for our coast. I think this area down way, way in the southeast is just gorgeous. It's very quiet and there's a lot of peace. But I think uh, I think our rivers and our marshes are not appreciated as much as they should be. And I have the great pleasure of living right by the Cape Fear River, which is the largest river in North Carolina. And 
the extensive marshes and habitat here is a pleasure to just sit back and watch nature unfold in front of you. So it's a little bit of a dual answer, but I think both are equally beautiful and they're both connected in the same way. Excellent. Well, Sam, it's great that you're doing the work that you're doing. I hope you've landed a job that you're able to keep doing this. And thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. All right, Adapters, I am back with Anita Van Breda from WWF to wrap things up. Hey, Anita, welcome back. Thanks, Doug. We just heard from some really ambitious and inspirational young people doing some really cool work out there. You listened to the comments. What did you think? Well, there was a couple of things that stood out for me listening to these conversations, and I can't get to them all, but a couple of highlights. I think Barry's mentioned, you know, bridging generations. And I think that's a really important point. And it came up at the workshop that it's not just about youth doing their thing and everyone else doing their things, but really bridging different generations and different experiences. And someone in the workshop, I actually forget who it was now, but they said, young people can run, but the older people know where to go. And I'm paraphrasing, but it was this idea that we really need to work together in order to advance risk reduction. Misaki said that in the workshop, that he challenged his youth champion colleagues to really be clear about what were they going to do. And he said, Anita and Luz can't do all this programming by themselves. What are we going to do? So he really took responsibility and challenged his colleagues to also take responsibility for the outcomes. And I thought that was really important. And then as David said, the younger generation is working hard, but they need tools to put change into action and they need backup to support that good work. And that's what we're trying to do with this youth program as well is is to support their ambitions. And I thought what Sam had to say about the relationship between art and science is also really important and reminded by the power of storytelling and Doug, your whole career is based now on storytelling. So I think that can't be underestimated in terms of the importance of making change happen and making change real. And I think with this Youth Champion Initiative and the skills and the enthusiasm of the of the individuals involved, we have a real chance to not just do projects, but to really try to change the system. Okay, so what's next for the initiative? Well, we have this great design that was designed by youth and for youth. We have a small group that got us started, but we really want to build upon that early success and that innovation and grow it into the future and expand it to others. So we're looking for partners, we're looking for collaborators, and we're looking for support to make that happen. And I hope that we can come back, Doug, in a year if you'll have us and give you an update on where we are with the program. Oh, that sounds delightful. Okay, so you were alluding to it just now about finding partners and such. So if people want to learn more and if people want to partner, what do you recommend my listeners do? Well, they can always connect with us, go to our website and connect that way and let us know where you are and what you're working on. And before we leave, do you want to acknowledge any partners and supporters? Well, we've had a lot of partners in this work. As I mentioned, USAID has helped with the funding and with some of the technical input. And we had support from the Red Cross, Red Crescent Climate Center with the youth 
initiative, which was a great help. And also the Youth for Resilience initiative has been very helpful in supporting this effort. Also, Luz mentioned it, but also want to thank the selection committee, U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and Woodrow Wilson Center. They both helped with this and that has been tremendously valuable. We're very grateful for all that support. Anita, we're going to wrap this up. It is always a treat working with you, working with World Wildlife Fund. You guys have been great supporters of the podcast and you guys are doing fantastic work. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having us, Doug. Hey, Adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks again to everyone who participated in this episode. As you heard, WWF is leading some critically important trainings that emphasize nature-based approaches to adaptation and flood risk reduction. I hope you enjoyed hearing from these young folks from around the world as much as I did. I'm very lucky to get to have these conversations. My focus is usually on the United States, but once in a while I get to learn how the rest of the world is approaching adaptation. And it's encouraging to see groups like WWF move beyond tokenism and put in the work to create meaningful space for youth to lead the change in critical issues like addressing flood risk and climate change adaptation. World Wildlife Fund has reached over a thousand people around the world with the Flood Green Guide program. And more importantly, they are supporting those on the front lines to include nature as the need to manage flood risk grows increasingly important. Remember, these trainings are essential to reducing risk and adapting to climate change. And WWF is actively seeking partners to expand their reach and make an even greater difference with their new Flood Green Guide Youth Initiative. So definitely reach out if you see an opportunity for partnerships. And as we wrap up, I want to thank Anita and WWF again for their sponsorship of this episode. Anita has been a leader in advancing nature as an essential element in the disaster and risk management space. And I've been fortunate to work closely with her. And before we sign off, don't forget to check out the three previous episodes I did with Anita in our archive featuring conversations with a range of flooding experts in the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Deltaris, the governments of the United Kingdom and Canada, as well as artists and filmmakers, episodes which delve deeper into the Flood Green Guide, an invaluable resource for anyone interested in flood management. Those episodes are in the show notes. Finally, as the host of America Adapts, I'm always eager to connect with my listeners and hear their feedback on the show. Whether you want to share your thoughts or suggest a guest you'd like to hear from, I'm open to it all. Your input not only helps me improve the show, but can also lead to exciting new opportunities. So please don't hesitate to get in touch with me at americadapts at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. I have already connected with folks in the last couple of weeks, and it's fantastic. I'm learning what you guys do, how you get value out of this podcast. So continue, reach out, email me, LinkedIn, whatever. It is always a treat to hear who's listening. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.